that uh, we may actually see Steve here today. I, I was over uh, in Glenvale for the first half of our service this morning since we're at 9 and you're at 10. So I got the first half of the service that Steve was leading and Steve says I got the introductories like, like Ray did, the first part of the service and Steve may yet make it here for, uh, uh, for my sermon. I'd like to just refresh our memory in the text. I'm going to read the first nine verses then. 1 Corinthians 1, if you have your Bibles open. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I have a question. I imagine many of you, uh, many of you read, whether that's a novel or any other sort of book, uh, let you, uh, imagine with me this morning that you've been given a new book by someone. Maybe you've picked it up from the library. It doesn't really matter. Um, where do you begin reading? I know some people begin at the end. I hope there's none of those people here. That's a terrible. That's a terrible thing to do to read to the end just to just to find out if it's going to be worth reading. How many of you read the introduction or the foreword or the acknowledgments? How, how many acknowledgement read? We've got one, two, three, four. We've got about, and, and the rest of you, how many of you just jump in straight at chapter one, like the prop, book proper? Okay, that's probably the other half, and there's some others of you who don't read at all, I take it. You, you neither read the introduction, the foreword, or anything uh, at all. I had no idea, obviously, how you would answer that question. Uh, let me just tell you what I do. I normally begin by, by reading the foreword and, and the acknowledgements. And if they're interesting, I carry on reading them. And if they're just like, uh, thank uh, Miss Mary, who was my prep teacher. And, you know, if, if it's that sort of a thing, then it's just like, okay, right into the real thing. But if there's just too much talking about people who I have no idea who they are and it's of no interest to me whatsoever, I skip straight ahead and into the action. And I wonder again, and I don't know again how you would answer this question, I don't know the answer to this question, I wonder if how you read books also affects how you read the Bible. Is there a connection? Is there a link between the way in which you read a book and the way in which you read the Bible? I'm wondering, this is a, not necessarily my theory, but just, just imagine this hypothesis with me, that if you're tempted to skip the forewords and the introductions and jump straight into the action in the books that you're reading, whether you would also be tempted to skip the opening parts of many of the New Testament letters. I wonder. 
You see, it would be easy to skip over these opening verses in 1 Corinthians, especially if you have your Bibles open, to skip over verses 1 to 3 right at the very beginning. Because here's all they seem to be saying, isn't it? Verse 1, Paul is writing along with another bloke called Sosthenes. You, thought, you, th- you probably thought 1 Corinthians was written just by Paul. Well, Sosthenes seems to have been involved in the writing of it as well. Maybe he was the scribe. So verse 1, Paul is writing. Verse 2, he's writing to the church in Corinth. Verse 3, he wishes them grace and peace. And now we can get on to the real stuff. Now we can get on to where the action is, to, to the meat. Let's get to the problems in the church. And believe you me, there are many. Let's deal with some real stuff this morning. After all, you're only here this one-off sermon. We're not going to hear you preach the rest of the stuff, the real stuff, in, in, in the subsequent weeks. But I want us to slow down a little this morning. And I want to put it to you that these opening verses of 1 Corinthians are indeed a part of the real stuff. And that throughout these opening nine verses... What we get is a glimpse of who we are in Jesus. And who are we? We are those who are gathered and loved by Jesus. Jump with me first of all to verse 2. You see it up there on the screen. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Friends, we are gathered here together. We are gathered this morning by Jesus. And that's something that makes the church different from any other volunteer society that you might join. It's this, you've been gathered by Jesus. You've been called, Paul says. That word means to be summoned. You have been summoned by God to be the holy people of Jesus. You've been summoned to be his saints. He's he's separated you from the world by joining you to himself, joining you to his body, joining you to his church, to his church, to his gathering. And it's easy to forget that it's Jesus' church. It doesn't take us very long after we've started coming to church, does it, to to start uh, owning our church. We talk to other people about the things that happen at our church or, or how our church is going. Steve is preaching in my church this morning. I'm preaching in in his church. We we talk about the things we like about our church or the things that we don't. We we, we talk about where we want to see our church going, where, where we want to see it growing, what its vision is for the future. I put it to you this morning that if anyone could speak about the church as being theirs, it might be Paul, since he established and planted this church. Doesn't that make it his church? But no, the church is not about us. The church is about Jesus. 
And so we are his church, just as the Corinthians were his church, the church of Jesus in Corinth, a Roman city in the south of Greece. What's more than that, when Jesus gathers us, he joins us to his people the world over. You now belong in Jesus to a worldwide family of Jesus. All those everywhere, Paul says, who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And it's not just geographically either that we're gathered into the church. We're gathered through time as well. When Jesus gathers us, he gathers us into his people as they have existed through all time. All those who together call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, on the name of the Lord. Back in the early chapters of Genesis, after Cain killed Abel, Adam and Eve, or Eve, not Adam and Eve, Eve gave birth to, to a son, Seth. And the scripture tells us that at that time, people began calling on the name of the Lord. We're joined to Abraham, who, our father in the faith, who called on the name of the Lord. We are joined, as Paul says here, with all those everywhere in every place through all time who call on the name of the Lord. Of course, it used to be that God's people would call on the name of the Lord in one place in particular. They would call on his name in Jerusalem at the temple. Now we call on the, on the name of the Lord everywhere, in any and every place through Jesus. We're not limited to one place, but we are gathered together not in one place. We are gathered together in one name, in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. Jesus who not only gathers us, but also sanctifies us. This is a letter written to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Jesus not only gathers us, but he sanctifies us as well. That means he declares us to be holy, blameless, pure. Not because we are blameless and pure but because we're gathered by Jesus who shares his blamelessness, who shares his purity with us. He makes us holy and then he calls us to be holy. And yes, you and I, we are to strive to be sanctified. We're to strive to, to put, off the, put off the deeds of the flesh and to put on instead the, the fruit of the Spirit. You strive to be sanctified and you both succeed and you fail. But Jesus does not fail. And this is his word to you. You are sanctified in Christ Jesus. We're gathered by Jesus and we're also loved by Jesus. How does Jesus show us his love here? 
Well, look firstly back to, back to verse 1. How does Jesus show his love for us, his people, the church, the people he has gathered together in his name? Firstly, verse 1, he sent us Paul, who was called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. How is sending us Paul through this letter to the Corinthians an act of love? Friends, it's an act of love because this letter and all the other letters of the New Testament, all the other books of the Bible are the words of God himself. This letter and indeed all of Scripture, old and new, is an expression of God's love for us, his people, in speaking to us. Not in audible words, but in in spirit-inspired words. Words for us, words to bless us, words to encourage us, words to correct us when we need correction. That's a sign for us of Jesus' love as he speaks to us today through his word. And why as evangelical and reformed churches, we value the word of God so highly, so dearly. How else does Jesus show us his love? Well, he shows us his love because along with the Father, he extends in verse 3, grace and peace to you. Grace giving us what we do not deserve. His love. Peace. Peace with God through the forgiveness of our sins, through the sacrifice of Jesus. Who are we? We are those who are gathered by, gathered by and loved by Jesus. That's who we are. And I want to put it to you this morning that that is something that we need to be reminded of time and time again. This is not something new. I think the reason why we need to be reminded of it again and again and again is because so often and so easily we are tempted to forget who we are in Jesus. We're tempted to think of ourselves as just ordinary people doing ordinary things in an ordinary way with ordinary lives. That is not who you are. That is not who you are. Oh, yes, we're ordinary. There's nothing that stands out about us and ourselves. What did Paul say in the reading before? Not many of you were were wise or, or famous or rich or... You were nothing compared to those in the upper echelons of society. When you came to faith in Jesus, think of who you were. You weren't any of these things. God revealed his gospel to you and, and God made what, was, what seemed foolishness, what does seem foolishness to the world into unimaginable greatness and joy and delight for you. So yes, we're ordinary, that's true. And yet we are anything but ordinary. Why? Because we have been summoned by Jesus. 
gathered by Jesus, set apart by Jesus, given grace and peace through Jesus. And so in that sense, there is nothing ordinary about you at all, nothing that matters. Who are we? We're those who are gathered and loved by Jesus. But there's a second thing that Paul would would bring to our attention, that that not only are we those who who are gathered and loved by Jesus, we're also those who are enriched and equipped by Jesus. We're those who are enriched and equipped by Jesus. Having, Having reminded us of who we are in Jesus, Jesus who gathers us and loves us, Paul's second reminder is that we're those who've been enriched and equipped by Jesus. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. You know, friends, these seven words at the very beginning of verse 4 are, in a sense, Truly remarkable words. I always thank my God for you. They seem very ordinary words. Ponder them with me and you. What makes them remarkable? What makes them remarkable, friends, is this. They are written about the Corinthians. That's what makes these words remarkable. Okay, how is, how is that remarkable? Let me tell you about the church. This is a church that is full of divisions and quarrels. There are factions and infighting there is worldliness. There is a rejection of Paul's authority as an apostle, even though he planted the church. They are people who are puffed up and arrogant. They are glorying in a case of sexual immorality and incest among them. They are suing one another in court. They are riding roughshod over those with weak consciences. That They are separating rich and poor, haves and, and have-nots when they celebrate the Lord's Supper. Some have Penfold's Grange, others are stuck with water. Some have beautiful food and others have, I don't know, bread and, bread and water. They boast and showy spiritual gifts. Their worship is disorderly. Some among them doubt the resurrection. They lack love. First Corinthians 13, they lack all of those things. I always thank my God for you. They are seven truly remarkable words. And it's not that Paul rejoices in, in any of the abuses and problems and struggles in, in this church. Of course not. And yet every day he thanks God for them. How can he do that? 
Why does Paul give thanks for such a church? Well, what does he say? Because God has given them grace. God has shown them kindness in Jesus. Therefore, Paul can give thanks. Why does Paul give thanks? Because God has poured out his spirit on this church, enriching them with all kinds of of speech and with all knowledge. You see, the gifts of the Spirit that Paul's later going to to go on to describe were were evidence that that despite their, their many and obvious flaws, God was at work in their lives. Paul's testimony about Christ was was confirmed in them. They have received grace from the God, grace from Jesus. Therefore, Paul can give thanks and does so. Why does Paul give thanks? Because through the Spirit, they have been enriched and equipped in every way for ministry. For the ministry of proclaiming Christ and making him known. For the ministry of encouraging one another in the faith as they, as they wait for the Lord Jesus to be revealed for his second coming. And I ask the question this morning. If Paul was still alive today, and well he is in heaven, but if Paul was still here on earth as an apostle of Jesus... And he was writing his letter to us, to us here at Eastgate this morning. What would it say? I'm persuaded that Paul would write the same words to us. I always thank my God for you. Paul wouldn't write these words about you. Because you're the perfect church. That's not why. I hate hate to break it to you, but you're not. That's why Steve had me come and preach this morning, so I could say that rather than him. It would come across better, wouldn't it, Steve? I imagine you have divisions and struggles. You're people who get weary and overwhelmed at times. You're you're tempted to, to worldliness. You strive for love, love for one another, love for the lost, and yet often you fall short of of that high and lofty ideal. But I'm persuaded that Paul would, would thank God for you. I'm persuaded that Paul would thank God for us because we belong to Jesus. Paul would thank God for us because we've received his grace. Paul would would, would thank God for us because we have the Spirit among us, equipping us, maturing us, uh, getting us ready for ministry so that we might glorify God as we we grow in faith, as we serve one another, as we seek to bring the the glorious news of, of a Savior who died for the forgiveness of sins to the many tens of thousands of people in our city who are on their way to hell. Paul would give thanks for us because Jesus will keep us firm to the end. That's his promise at the very end of our text. Jesus will keep us. Jesus will will help you to stand firm. Jesus will help you to persevere in faith. Jesus will help you 
if you were his. Why? Because God is faithful. God doesn't call us. God doesn't gather us into fellowship with his son. God doesn't gather us together in Jesus, only to abandon us the next moment. No, God is with us. He is faithful, faithful forever. And that gives us confidence. That gives us confidence and courage to serve. That gives us confidence and courage to to take the spiritual gifts that God has given us and use them in his kingdom. That gives us encouragement that, that we will run the race and finish the course and be welcomed one day into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us a desire to press more deeply into Christ, into the grace of Christ, and allow that grace to to transform us, to, to mold us and shape us and enrich us. And don't we need to know that? Because, you know, sometimes living amongst God's people, sometimes living life together, doesn't always seem to be the blessing that it is. I'm reminded of a little ditty I heard once. Someone said, to live above with those we love, unsurpassing glory. To live below with those we know, quite another story. Isn't that true sometimes? It's so good to be a part of God's people and yet, and yet that's where you find irritations and frustrations because, why? Because, because God and his sovereignty, God and his sovereign grace has, has made other people and he put them in your church and they're different. Isn't it strange? I mean, God in all his perfection, he made you. Why didn't he fill the church with people like you so we can all just get along and we love the same things and we we, we desire to serve in the same ways and we've got the same vision and, and, and goal for what we're going to accomplish. But God in his sovereignty made people other than you. People made, he made people different than you. He equipped them with the sorts of things that you find frustrating. And that is the grace of God. That is the sovereignty of God. It's something we need to come to terms with. But that's why sometimes it doesn't seem like a blessing to be amongst God's people. Sometimes we can do what Paul could have done, but didn't do. Fix our eyes not on the blessing of of knowing and being gathered by Jesus or or the work of the Spirit and equipping and enriching us, but instead fix our eyes on the troubles of being together rather than the joys that we share in Jesus Christ. We can fix our eyes on the sin that so easily entangles us rather than the joys that are ours together in Jesus rather than celebrating an awareness of the magnificent and glorious ways in which the Spirit of God is at work in those around us and and our brothers and sisters. We can fix our eyes on brothers and sisters and see only with human eyes, rather than see one another the way we really are, to see one another as God sees us, as those sanctified in Christ Jesus who have been given grace by Jesus. At least I need to be reminded of those things. 
since I need to be reminded, I have a reasonable suspicion, I think, that some of you might need to be reminded of those things as well. You see, we need to train ourselves, we need to train our our minds to see one another as we really are. To see one another, to see those around us as those who have been gathered by Jesus, loved by Jesus, equipped and enriched by Jesus, filled with the spirit that Jesus sends. We are his body. I love the song that Amy Music have, uh, We Declare. Some of you know it. In that song, we declare together the praises of Jesus. We sing of of who we are. We sing of, of who we are, not at our worst, but at our best. Who are we in Jesus? We're his kingdom. We are we're his bride. Because he paid the price for us. He bled and died for us. He adopted us. He gathered us. And now we are his. Therefore, with thankfulness, we sing. Friends, brothers and sisters, gathered here by Jesus at Eastgate. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. From the God who loves you. The God who sent his son to die for you. The God who sent his son to gather you into into his church. The God who fills you with his spirit to equip you for every good work as you seek to serve him and live for his glory. That God welcomes us this morning and extends grace and peace to us in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is such a blessing for us to be reminded of who we are in Jesus, because our eyesight is so often weak, and instead of seeing who we are in Jesus, we let our eyes fix on other things. We're drawn to the things that irritate or annoy us about life together. We're drawn into quarrels and arguments with others. We're discouraged as we consider our progress in the faith. We're discouraged as we reflect on how much we still struggle with sin and it just seems to be so difficult to get rid of. And we wonder if you really are at work in us. We have doubts. Remind us, O God, of who we are in Jesus. And that we are sanctified not because of what we do, not because of our good works, not because we are successful or consistent or courageous or any of those things. We are sanctified because Jesus died for us. He was raised for us. And all those whom you've called, you sanctify. And all those you sanctify, you glorify. And one day we will be with Jesus in his eternal kingdom forever. Father, thank you that you are amongst us. Thank you that your spirit is equipping us, emboldening us for ministry in the name of Jesus. We pray that we might do that increasingly into your glory as we wait for the coming day of Jesus, the day of his return. 
when we shall be all that we are in reality, in perfect truth. Thank you for your love for us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.